Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta per social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is uh, is a little bit different, but it, it's it's an approach that uh, I anticipate we're going to be we're going to be doing more of because um, I, I find it interesting, and I think many of our listeners will as well. And, and what I mean by that is. Um, we're going to in, inject some topics on decisions that are not just at the at the tactical and strategic level, but at the foundational level. In other words, how do people how do people make decisions in general? Right, and I'm, I'm spoiler alert. A spoiler alert. I'm starting to put together a, a book on this, and I've done some mind mapping. And, and by the way, mind mapping is really cool. I learned how to do this about two months ago, and 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 now now I'm addicted. Um, you, now you might imagine that a mind map for me would be a blank, a blank piece of paper, and that's not necessarily an unfair uh, prediction. But anyway, if you're if you know a, a fun thing to do is just sort of think about a topic and then kind of draw it out. It's it's actually it's actually quite addictive. But that's neither here nor there. Maybe we'll do a topic on mind mapping. Um, but I, but I want to do, and I'm becoming fascinated by, you know, how do people arrive at their decisions and people can look at, you know, people make decisions that make sense to us and people make decisions that I think to many of us seem, seem baffling and and the baffling decisions can be, can, can be very interesting. They can be very insightful. They can be very instructive. And so, you know, as we, as we move forward with the recording podcast, we're going to talk about different decision-making themes and processes and paradigms. And, and the topic we're going to discuss today is how do people decide to become white-collar criminals? So, you know, the, there's, there's no shortage of, of kind of content, if you will, on criminal activity. And, and look, as, at least as Americans, we love crime stuff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm now on the, uh, on the older side of 50, which means I've started watching NCIS. Um, and, and, and I mean, we just, we just love the show, even though the, the things from 20 years ago are a little bit dated, you know, law and order is, has like five spinoffs and they're on their 200th season or something like that. Um, you know, you know, even law firms, you th- I mean, you think about it, a lot of people think about, about law firms and, and with all due respect to my attorney friends out there. It's not the thing you normally think about and say, man, this, I got to get inside a law firm. But on the other hand, you know, law, you know, law, law firm related shows have been some of the most popular. So people are fascinated with, 
the law and people are fascinated with with uh, with with law enforcement and and how that at least ostensibly works in a dramatized version. I, I can go on and on, but you just sit and think about how many how many shows on TV have something to do with law enforcement. You know, it's staggering. I'd be willing to bet you one out of every four shows has something to do with with law enforcement. And and so I think it's a it's a natural segue or a natural foothold into the topic we're going to talk discuss today, which is how do people decide to become white collar criminals? And and this is an extremely broad topic because and as, as we're going to learn today, you know, a white collar criminal can mean very very you know a, a broad range of of things. Or there's uh, no shortage of white of types of white collar crime that one might uh, one, one might commit. But you know, having worked alongside forensic accountants for a number of years, and I, I am not one. Um, but but listening to the stories and then also talking with our guests has some fascinating stories uh, of of his own. Um, I, I you know I always kind of the question I ask all the time when I meet someone who's a forensic accountant is 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 you know, how do people decide they're going to become white collar criminals? You know what what leads to that path? And we're going to get into a little bit of the the psychology and the pathology, if you will. Of, of white collar crime because not, not because I'm encouraging somebody to make that decision, but rather if, if you want to combat um, white collar crime, or just if you want to understand, you know, what makes people kind of go down that road, um, you know, that, that's, that's useful intelligence and give you some, it can give you some insight in, in terms of how do you decide that somebody is trustworthy and how much trust um, can you place in them? And so I hope you will agree that you know, at the end of the day, this is going to be a very interesting uh, and engaging topic and a very interesting and engaging guest. Um, and joining us today is Vic Hartman, who is a retired FBA agent and head of the Hartman Firm LLC, a law firm and a CPA firm here in Atlanta, Georgia, serving individuals, businesses, government entities, and outside councils. Um, Vic is a licensed attorney and certified public accountant in the state of Georgia and a graduate of the Emory University School of Law. Um, he holds a credential certified in financial forensics by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and certified fraud examiner by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And he is the author of his recent book, The Honest Truth About Fraud, A Former FBI Agent Tells All. And I'm sure that book will be woven into uh, our conversation today. Vic addresses his clients' needs in the interrelated disciplines of internal investigations, forensic accounting, and fraud mitigation consulting. Once an adverse event has occurred, Vic will communicate compassionately with the client, compassionately with the client, and develop a positive strategy for moving forward. Prior to founding the firm, Vic was a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he served as a street agent, supervisory special agent, and chief division counsel. These varied experiences with the FBI enabled him to become an experienced investigator, interviewer, interrogator, forensic accountant, attorney, and leader. Vic is also an adjunct professor at Georgia State University and Fairfield University, teaching forensic accounting to master degree candidates. Vic holds a bachelor's degree in accounting from Valdosta State University and the aforementioned law degree from Emory University. And if we have time, we've got to get him to tell the Moonrock story and I hope we will, because when I had lunch with him for the first time a couple of years ago, 
I was transfixed about this because we had to have, we had a discussion of how do you value a moon rock? Um, so hopefully we'll have time. Vic, welcome to the program. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, so Vic, you've um, been a longtime agent. You're a professor of, of financial forensics and, and catching white collar bad guys. Um, is, is there a typical profile or anatomy of the white collar criminal? Um, well, wow, wow. That's a fairly simp- simplistic question. It's amazingly complex to answer, actually. But at a 30,000-foot view, I would break white-collar criminals into two categories, predatory fraudsters and situational fraudsters. Predatory fraudsters, uh, we've got to know through the ransomware where somebody encrypts your hard drive and extorts a ransom, or the business and email compromise, which is the biggest fraud uh, happening across the world and in the U.S. right now. Common frauds and, you know, congratulations, you won a prize and you got to pay something for it. Those are predatory fraudsters. They're very thought out. They know what they're doing. Um, and they got into it very intentionally. The other category is situational fraudsters, which means if a certain group of circumstances, if you're in an occupation and certain pressures and opportunities, rationalizations and other things come to fold, then they make a bad choice when this situation arises. So broadly, we can put those into those two camps. Uh, most of my time has been spent with the situational fraudster, however. You know, Vic, as you, as you make that, as you make that response, I'm reminded of a reading that I've done on uh, espionage and in particular Soviet U.S. Cold War espionage. And, and um, you know, I, I would argue that espionage is, is a kind of white collar crime. It's simply a crime against the state as opposed to an individual or, or a company. Um, and, and, and the common theme that emerged on of American spies for the USSR was that it was that, that situational transactional um, scenario. And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into more of this. Um, uh, but, you know, somebody who had gambling debts or something who was particularly financially vulnerable that was pushed into crime out of an act of desperation. And it, it sounds like that, you know, there, there may be kind of a common thread there. Um, there's a, there's a wide range of white collar criminals, isn't there? I mean, it's, it's not just, it's not just somebody forging checks anymore, is it? I mean, there's just this broad range now of, of opportunities and therefore types of white collar crime, isn't there? Yeah, there's actually a classification system where we can categorize, categorize every fraud known to man in certain categories, which is very helpful for investigators is very helpful for management that's trying to develop internal controls to prevent them. It's um, formulated by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and it's known as the Occupational Fraud and Abuse Classification System, affectionately known as the fraud tree. And we can't get into all the details on this podcast, but from a high-level view, we can break it down into three branches. And this is very important because these frauds in these three different branches are dramatically different and the motivations which causes them to commit those crimes are dramatically different. One is most easily understood and that's misappropriation of assets. Good news and bad news. It's the good news is it's lower dollar amounts usually. The bad news is the most popular types of frauds. It includes embezzlements, time and attendance fraud, travel reimbursements, credit card abuse, these types of things we commonly see, and that's misappropriation of assets. 
On the other end of the spectrum, there was financial statement fraud. So good news, bad news there. The good news is it doesn't happen that often. The bad news is the magnitude of it can result in the demise of the organization. And then another, the third branch of the fraud tree, and it happens in intermediate degree of frequency and intermediate degree of loss. And that's corruption and conflicts of interest. And that would be paying bribes or having a conflict that you don't disclose to your board. Um, what, what I find fascinating, though, is these three branches, misappropriation of assets, financial statement frauds, and corruption, the motivations to commit those are radically different. In the case of misappropriation of assets, the most common types of fraud, I call them status crimes, and that people's trying to keep their status or increase their status. So to keep their status, it's fear-based, fear of losing their job, fear of not being able to pay the mortgage, fear of not being able to keep up with their gambling habit. And fear is a tremendous driver of fraud. And then the other is status is greed-based, that I'm not happy where I am with my lot in life and my salary doesn't support my lifestyle, therefore I won't commit fraud. So those, those status crimes are commonly associated with misappropriation of assets. For financial statement fraud, radically different. We often think, and I've played leadership roles in Enron and WorldCom, and got to know some of the motivations of those executives who were already tremendously wealthy. So it wasn't about the money for those. It was other drivers like pride and shame and managing those emotions in the workforce. And then lastly, corruption, which I find the most fascinating branch of all the trees because it's the most difficult to investigate. Um, but it's I call it the social contract of reciprocity, actually a marketing term. But it's a quid pro quo that if I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. If I give you gifts over time, I just slowly corrupt you. And that's the the core motivator that I found for most types of corruption. That, 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 let me, I want to I want to follow that up because I think I think that's really interesting. Why is it that corruption is is in your view at least so much harder to investigate than uh, than than the status and uh, wealth motivators? Well, so of the three branches of the fraud tree, with misappropriation of assets and financial statement frauds, they're they're somewhat accounting frauds. You can trace the money. There, there's money that went from point A to point B, and you can follow that. Um, with not too much difficulty. With corruption, however, the payments, often cash bribes, paid outside of the organization. And for some reason, (laughs) it happens by passing a cash of envelope in the men's restroom. I've just seen it happen that way so many times, but it can happen in all different ways. But those, if you don't have an undercover FBI agent or some other undercover type uh, investigating that, doing wiretaps and other complicated investigative techniques, it's hard to prove um, corruption because there's often not an easily traceable money trail. So, so that's interesting. So the, the thing we see on TV with the, <clears throat> the brown envelope full of cash, that actually happens. It actually happens more than times that I would have thought. And if I, I wouldn't have believed if I, if I hadn't seen it happen so many times. I guess Hollywood has at least one good consultant somewhere along the way. Um, now in, in your, in your, your book, you, you, you talk about a construct, I think it was in your book, called the fraud triangle, which I thought is is really interesting. I think it's a widely held construct in your profession. Uh, if, if that's correct, could you could explain what that what that means? Sure. Well, it's a theory that explains 
most, but not all. There's a major exception where it does not explain. But there's a fraud trial explains why fraud occurs. And it was actually theorized by Dr. Ronald Cressy in the 1950s and really didn't get popular until the 1980s and 90s. But now it's in all the literature for CPAs, accountants, the PCOB. Uh, this theory of Donald Ronald Cressy uh, is now in all the accounting standards. And it's instructive for auditors and CPAs to consider these three branches or these three vertices of the fraud triangle um, when doing audits and other techniques. And that is, uh, the theory is that if these three vertices of the fraud triangle exist, then fraud is uh, highly likely to happen or could occur. And, and the three vertices are opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. So if those three come into play, then an employee, these are often occupational frauds, an employee uh, is more tempted to and may commit fraud. In opportunities, the easiest to understand, if you can't have the opportunity to commit fraud, then it just won't occur. So internal auditors can develop internal controls around opportunity. But pressure and rationalization, those are a lot more difficult um, vertices of the fraud triangle to, to prevent against. And the theory is if we knock out one of these three you know, sides of the fraud triangle, then we'll prevent fraud in our organizations. And pressure can come from two types. Pressure inside the organization, pressure to make the numbers. Um, those often is incentivized by the uh, HR department where they put commission structures and such and incentivizes it. So pressure to make the numbers. And then there's pressure outside the organization. And I call them life happens events, divorce, drugs, gambling, bankruptcy, all these things happen. So they, these employees bring that pressure into the workforce um, and are tempted to commit fraud. Employee assistance programs are very helpful things to try to uh, work with employees because if, if your employer is trying to help you, you're much less likely to steal from them. And then the third vertice of the fraud triangle is rationalization. And that's a really difficult one to try to mitigate around, but it deals with the culture of the organization. Uh, do we have a strong culture? Do employees feel like they're on the same team, pulling for the same mission statement? Um, that's ways to, to mitigate that rationalization. So the theory is if these three um, components are present, then fraud uh, may occur with some employees. They'll be more tempted to commit fraud. There's one extreme limitation, though, on the fraud triangle. And, and it, um, it's the fraud triangle works when you're in what I call privity of trust or in a trust-based relationship. So that's why we have rationalization of the fraud triangle, because we have a conscience and we have to rationalize around that to commit fraud. Um, but if we don't have to rationalize, if we're not in privity of trust with our victim, um, the business email compromise, the rent ransomware, scams that we're getting via emails. These predators don't even know their victims. So for this one category for which the fraud triangle does not apply, I call them predatory fraudsters because they're not in privy of trust with their victim. That, that, that's, that's really interesting. And, and that I like to explore that. So, you know, we talk about you talk about rationalization and that ver vertex of the of the fraud triangle is it seems to me that you know one thing I hear a lot about about white collar crimes and criminals is is a perception that a crime can be 
you know, quote unquote, victimless, right? We, we both heard the term victimless crime. Is, is that a frequent perception that, that drives or enables that rationalization along the line? Or is, is that more of a stereotype and myth? Well, first of all, fraud is a human act. It's, it's intentional. It's what one person does. And anytime there's a fraud, it's a criminal act, it's an unethical act, the fraudster gains and the victim loses. Not often by equal amounts, but the fraudster gains and the victim loses. So every crime, by definition, has a victim. Yep. However, in, in, writing, in writing the book, The Honest Truth About Fraud, there's three frauds that jumped out for me, and I've been doing this for 30 years. But there's three humongous categories of fraud that struck me as to their magnitude. And then, I'm, then I asked myself the question, why are these frauds occurring? One is healthcare fraud. And that one actually was not a surprise to me because I was over the Houston Area Healthcare Fraud Task Force, saw humongous amounts of fraud and tried to quantify how much this fraud was happening across the U.S. But healthcare fraud is one of those categories. The second one was tax fraud. It's amazing how much uh, intentional underpayment of taxes that U.S. citizens, people, and corporations fail to pay in their taxes, um, tax evasion, and it's tax fraud. And then the third category that really struck me is uh, a very large category is theft of intellectual property, which technically is not fraud because it's theft. Uh, and just think China about espionage and theft of intellectual property. But what these three frauds have in common, healthcare fraud, tax fraud, and theft of intellectual property, is that the victims, you know, us as U.S. citizens, we don't feel victimized by any of these. And yet we pay more for our health care, we pay more in taxes, and we pay more for goods and services because intellectual property has been stolen. So while it appears victimless, we all pay the price, we just don't feel it. And each of these are about a quarter trillion plus, is the way I've calculated in the book. Uh, these are humongous frauds that's ripping us all off, and none of us feel it. You know, after this podcast, none of your listeners are going to run to their congressmen and complain about this. Um, and they're, if it came out of your paycheck, you'd be up in arms if somebody stole $500 out of your paycheck this month. Um, but with these frauds, they're ripping us off daily and we don't even feel it. Um, you know, that, that, yeah. And you know, that, 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 that perception, you know, it certainly sounds like, you know, uh, you can rationalize it all you want. And of course, I'm not suggesting there is such a thing as a victimless crime, but I, but you, but you bring up something that, that, that gets me thinking in that this, this, this relatively new avenue of fraud via cybercrime really, um, really provides, I guess, a new channel, if you will. I don't know if that's the right term of art, but a new channel for the intentional, you know, malicious, malignant fraudster whose sole desire is to steal money as opposed to an opportunist who kind of emotionally warps and, 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 and rationalizes their way into a crime. But with cybercrime, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, you know, more than that out of a million, um, you don't know and you don't even care who the identity of your, of your victim is. It's, it's really, it's really pushing buttons, hacking code and then taking people's information and doing something malignant with them. And that, that's just a, is is that something that makes that maybe makes cybercrime more scary because it it it's a natural venue, if you will, for 
maybe even professional criminals. That, does that question make any sense to you? Yeah, no, it's, it certainly does. And even with cybercrime, there's two categories. There's theft of intellectual property. And again, think China. And they're doing it as a nation state actor. And they're very intentional. And they don't consider it fraud by their standards at all. It's for the greater good of communism that they're stealing our intellectual property from governments and businesses. Um, the FBI director said every 50 states have ongoing espionage cases. But that's one category of cyber fraud. And then there's a radically different. So that's the trying to hack computers, the business email compromise, ransomware. And the profile of that individual is um, often Eastern country actors, Ukrainians, not to pick on them, but others in foreign countries. And the profile is a white male between 20 and 30 years old. And they're not necessarily doing it for the money. Um, there's more excitement, fun, um, and it often, often takes a combination of hackers with various school, skill sets and they come together and then they pull off hacks and sure they get a lot of money, but that's not really their primary motivator, at least not at first. It's really about the challenge and it's like a new gaming. You know, you, when you don't see your victim, it's just a game. Really? That, that, that is, I, I would not have guessed that. Um, that, that's fascinating. So that, so what you're saying is that for a lot of these these cyber crimes, the, the motivation is, is is as much about vandalism, effectively, um, yeah. and and I guess sort of showcasing their skills and just trying to beat somebody else's security. And the fact is, a financial payoff, I guess, just makes it all the more attractive. But that's not why they get into it. No, it's like a pinball game, and you just got a higher number. You know, more money was was the goal, but it, that wasn't the. You weren't in for the money. You're in just to see who could do the most damage. So uh, let, let's let's talk about the um, the situational fraudsters as opposed to the um, uh, the intentional and professional ones. Because um, I think the professional intentional ones, I think, is a fairly straightforward mindset that we may come back to it. But what you know, how how do, on on the opportunistic or situational side. Can, can you talk, are there patterns that have emerged on how people kind of start down that path? Because it doesn't, my impression is, is people in that situation, I don't know what percentage that is of all, of all fraud, if it's 10% or 90 or 52.8. Um, but, but they don't wa- they don't wake up in the morning saying, Hey, I'm a crook. So it's time for me to steal something today. It's, it's, is it something else that kind of drives that, that decision? And then the subsequent decisions to um, to pursue that that criminal path. Yes. So, first of all, we'll rule out the predatory fraudsters, which are, which are very intentional, and they do wake up and say, "Yeah, I'm going to be a crook." They don't consider it that way, but it's more of a game type for them. But the situational fraudster, um, everyone that I've met, they never joined the organization with the intent to commit fraud. Um, you know, they're otherwise mostly outstanding members of the community. Uh, They would be your next door neighbor. And then they find themselves in a corporate environment, just as an example of where, think about the fraud triangle, pressure, opportunity, rationalization. And then they find themselves either on one one to three branches of the fraud tree. They're either in the finance department, um, responsible for financial statements, or they're out doing sales with government officials that might be tempted to bribe them or they've got, they've been a, given a credit card with no controls. Um, you know, 
now in my private practice, since I've left the FBI, I would say 80% of the frauds that I'm calling to look at, it's going to involve credit cards. And if you give somebody a credit card with no internal controls around it, a high percentage of people will abuse it. But they find themselves in the situation where, A, they have the opportunity to commit the fraud. Then there's some self-perceived pressure, and then they've rationalized in some way. Like, I've been in this organization all my life. I deserve better. Or I see corporate officials uh, abusing the, the company. And so just that piece of rationalization will get them over the edge. And they find themselves in the circumstances, and then they're committing fraud. They would never thought it of themselves. The people around them never would have thought they would have done that. And then here they are committing fraud. And and so they've they've so those so they've rationalized and and that's a fascinating number by the way um, or not a number but characterization or if I if I heard this correctly you know mo- if you if you give most people in effect a blank credit card at some point down the road they're going to commit fraud which is which is interesting I, I would not have necessarily I would not have necessarily thought that um, but it, is it. You know, my, my, my perception and, may, and maybe I've just sort of made this up. You know, do they, do they, do they start with something that's small? That's kind of in a gray area where you could very, you could credibly argue that it's, it's not fraud. It's really just a decision and this, you know, maybe there's a dual purpose to that charge, but you can argue that it did bring value to whoever has a credit card liability. And then once that slides through, you're then encouraged to become more aggressive. Or is it some other kind of emotional pathology that 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 is at work there? No, it's it's a slippery slope concept. You know, I've never seen anybody that started at a million dollars and worked their way down. It always goes the other direction, um, and they do it once and they feel uncomfortable about it, and then they but they don't get caught. There's no internal controls, and then they increase it, um, and then next thing you know, they're into significant frauds. You know, I've seen this slippery slope concept with financial statement fraud, where the CFO will call on all hands on deck and said, it's the end of a quarter. We're just a few shy cents of our number meeting Wall Street's expectation. Can everybody, the finance department, the accounting department, go back and scrub the numbers for mistakes or judgments? And, and by the way, there's this thing called Sarbanes-Oxley, and I don't want you to violate that, and we want to uphold the highest of ethical standards. But do scrub the numbers and look for judgments or, or mistakes. And then a day or two later, somebody comes back and, you know, hey, hey, boss, congratulations. We, we, we did this. We found a couple of mistakes and there's some accounting judgments that we tweaked and we think it's more, more in line. And by the way, we made our numbers. And then the CF, CFO uh, or the CEO lavishes praise and congratulations. Then the next quarter, this comes up. And same thing, we're just shy of Wall Street's expectations go back and scrub the numbers, look for mistakes and judgments, issues, and somebody comes back and saved the day. And then this happens quarter after quarter. And then we went from a gray area to the financial statements are just absolutely bogus and fraudulent. And we're scratching our head, how did we get here? Well, the CFO had a leadership failure and by two, doing two things. One, he asked them to look for the numbers that only helped them. So he didn't ask for numbers, just scrub the numbers and see what would, would come up the other way because they probably right. could turn up negative numbers. But he only asked them to look for a biased number, which is a positive number. And then he lavished praise on them for doing that. And you get to a 
you know, an organization where nobody really intended to do this. And they went down the slippery slope and now they have bogus financial statements that they're reporting to Wall Street. Um, yeah, yeah and, and what happens is sort of a reinforced, there's a, there's a reinforced behavior, right? So it's interesting, you, you, you talk about the leadership there and, you know, I can't, I can't agree more. What you're basically doing is you're training people maybe without even those people fully understanding it. You're basically training them to commit fraud. And, you know, from my perspective, and I love your opinion on this. It's okay to ask people to go back and scrub the numbers. But then, you know, at a minimum, that number should be looked at maybe constructively. I might, I might put one team, I might have one team to, whose, whose objective is to find numbers that will help us and another team to find numbers that would hurt us or another, or the second team reviews the first one and try to play the role of the auditor, if you will, and, and try to have some sort of, some sort of backstop. Um, but, but you're right. There's that, there's that, at least that implicit notion that, yeah, you know, don't violate Sarbanes-Oxley, but don't, don't necessarily help the auditors either. And, you know, that is a lie of omission as much as it is, as it is one of commission. Right. Right. Um, so are there, now we've, in, one thing we really haven't talked about, and it may mean that the question just is not relevant, and if it is, that's great, is personality. You know, are, we've talked about you know, opportunity and pressure and rationalization. Are there some personality types or emotional states, and maybe that goes more to pressure, so I'm, I'm actually going to take that off the table. Are there personality traits that, in your mind, seem to make people more susceptible or, or more receptive or more resistant to the notion of being a perpetrator of fraud? Um, yeah, you know, there definitely are. Um, first, first, just by the numbers, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners does a biannual report to the nations. And so they track all these um, thousands of frauds that they're looking at. And they've come up with some numbers that the average uh, white collar defendants between the ages of 35 and 45, 70 percent are male. They have a tenure of one to five years in their organization, and they're more likely to work in the accounting and finance department. Um, that being said, those are some raw characteristics of the white collar defendant. I don't like to look at that at all. That, that's profiling. And to me, it's somewhat um, nothing wrong with profiling in this context, but it's just not helpful because it really can be anybody in the organization. So I throw that out there as just some raw data. Um, but really what, what I look at is Frauds happen of the three, think about the, the fraud tree again. There's different motivators for those different types of frauds and there's different personality traits associated with each of those. So, um, you know, for the um, misappropriation of assets, that status of fear or greed base, um, that's going to have a certain profile of the individual Um the social compact of reciprocity, the concept when we're corruption and how we're um, being influential and, and a lobbyist type and outgoing gregarious personality and try to influence people. So that would be a different personality trait. And then with financial statement fraud, um, it's really how we manage pride and shame. Um, and so it takes a certain personality to, to handle those issues. You know, what I really like to think in fraud outside of the fraud tree is, um, and I know 
most of my audience, at least my students, people in business, we think we're very intellectual, analytical people. And so when we make a decision to whatever we're making a business decision, we put up the analytics and the pros and the cons, and we have our algorithms. But actually, we as humans, when we make judgment decisions, we make it with emotions. I learned this through a psychiatrist that I consult with in the behavioral forensics group. So what I like to tell um, people in this field is let's use emotions as data. And there's affects or emotions. Um, psychologists, psychologists and psychiatrists would describe as enjoyment, fear, shame, contempt, anger. But these emotions um, drive decision-making. So we might tee up a decision with pros and cons um, for various issues, but it's actually our personality and our emotions that's actually going to drive a particular decision. So um, I'm, I'm curious about, about, about one thing, um, and, and you may not even want to answer this, and if you don't, that's, that's entirely, uh, entirely okay. But I'm curious, are there traits that make people more successful as, as, you know, white collar criminals, I'm sure there's not a 100% catch rate. Um, you know, some, the reality of life is that some people do get away with murder. Um, you know, are there, are there personality traits that make people more likely to be, you know, to be successful or at least be able to avoid detection for a longer period of time and therefore do more damage than others? You know, absolutely. And it, Again, it depends on the individual and what part they're in the organization as to what traits would make them effective. For example, if you're in the accounting or finance department, um, the trait may be, and what we're looking at is uh, fraud is a violation of trust. So we're looking at personality traits that make that person appear to be trustworthy because then you trust them, misplaced trust, and you get victimized by fraud. So the accounting and finance example that individual may be a smart, hardworking, stays late, uh, may even be a little boring. That's their personality, and it makes them trustworthy. So that personality trait, if you're in the finance or accounting department, might be the profile that would get that would gain trust. Whereas if you say you're in sales, totally different personality. You might be um, you have charisma, you relate to people, you're believable, but again, you're trustworthy. And then the C-suite, the CEO and the CFOs and those types, they have the appearance of success. They're hardworking. They have hard-driven personalities that build trust. You know, and, and in this area, which my time with the FBI, I've spent more time working financial statement frauds, even though they occur less frequently. And I've learned of this concept of the dark triad of personalities. And these were three very negative personalities can come together. And one is psychopathy. It's where you have no apathy towards your victim. Narcissism, all about yourself, promoting yourself. And Machiavellianism, which means the just the ends justify the, the means. And some CEOs who have this these combinations of deadly traits known as the dark triad, you don't know what's going on in their mind, but they but they're they look very successful but it's a very dangerous personality to have. So you talked, you talked a little bit. I'm, I'm so delighted you put it in this way because it, it justifies the reason for my doing this interview, which is about 
you know, the decision making of white collar crime is is not necessarily what we would consider a purely rational one. And and one of the one of the irrational facets of that decision making process that I find I find fascinating, and you even touched upon this at the very start of this conversation, is um do do people do do white collar criminals not appreciate the consequences of getting caught, right? Because the consequences of being caught are, are are often disastrous, right? They're not just, I mean, I guess sometimes they're slaps on the wrist, but they're, you know, from my, from where I sit, they're often disastrous. Do, do people not perceive that? Is there a rational trade-off saying, yeah, I know I could get caught and it's really bad, but I'm going to take the risk anyway. What, what does that emotional state look like in your mind? Um, no, they never think they're going to get caught. In, in the first instance, they really don't think what they're doing is wrong. They've rationalized in such a way that they don't fully appreciate what they're doing is wrong. Uh, and they certainly don't think they're going to get caught. Every time we have a major scandal in the U.S., and I've watched this over my 30 years of watching how Congress reacts, they'll come out with new laws, and now we're up to 20 year offenses for many federal crimes. Um, I've never known one white collar defendant that said, well, I looked at the statute and it said I could get 20 years. I think I'm not going to do that. The, the, the consequences of their action have no bearing on their decision-making. And I've also never seen, for example, a white collar defendant that says, "Eh, I think there's a 5% chance of me getting caught, but there's a $3 million reward. So I'll take my odds and I'll go with the 3 million. I've never find anybody that that works under that calculus. Um, It's, it's, it's the fraud triangle at work. It's more of they're caught up in a situation. They think they can, A, what they're doing is not wrong or not too wrong. They're going to get out of it. They're going to repay the money. And certainly they're never going to get caught. And, and you know, this, 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 this um, overlaps nicely with, a, with another question. Um, and I, I think we're answering it in real time. And, th- and that's fine. Is that, you know, um, I, I agree with you from what I've, what I've seen sort of secondhand is that a lot of people who are caught, they're, they're a surprised they got caught and be surprised they even committed a crime. You sort of have to, some, sometimes people have to go to jail for a long time before they finally really get it, that they, they've actually done something wrong because they've so rationalized it in their mind. And that, that de-linkage of actions and consequences, I, th- I think, is really important and very perceptive because maybe that's the pattern that, that leads to the pressure to commit the fraud in the, in the first place, right? If, if you have a drug problem, you have a gambling addiction, right, that, that puts you outside of, a, of something that you can sustain financially that therefore creates the pressure that has you seek the opportunity to create the rationalization for fraud. These aren't standalone things, or they're 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 probably linked. Is that the person who is inclined to to rationalize fraud that that same that same mental approach is probably what has led to the pressure to commit the fraud in the first place? Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely, yes. Um. So yeah, so you know, I, it's. I think there's a notion out there that, you know, you know, good people become criminals, but it, it, it always reminds me of, you know, when we hear of a mass violent crime in the United States, it's, it's never, it's, it's never, oh yeah, that person was, 
that person was outgoing or everybody knew that person was nuts. Um, it's always somebody that, you know, kept to themselves, seemed nice enough. Nobody really knew them. They're kind of invisible. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you kind of wonder if there's, you know, maybe there's even a linkage between the, the, the emotional state of somebody who's willing to commit a violent crime versus a nonviolent crime, probably just a, mat- a matter of degree. Right. Um, so good people uh, commit fraud. Um, bad people commit fraud as well. But, but um, my experience has actually been that they're good people at some level. They've, they've done certain things in their life that are probably very noteworthy and um, to be your next door neighbor that you would, wouldn't mind living next to. The reason why most of the times it's good people that did a bad thing is because fraud is a violation of trust. And so you have trust in that individual. And in order for you to have trust in the individual, you must have experienced some level of good that they've done in the past, or you wouldn't have that trust. So my experience and, and recidivism rate among white collar defendants is very low. Um, hmm. When you have an executive in a company that gets caught with white collar crime, um, they're not likely to do it again. That, that's interesting. So, so people do sort of, I guess, sort of snap out of it or they, they learn the lesson and then, try to pick the pieces up. Now, I, I suspect part of that is also once you have a record that says you're a fraudster, um, the opportunities to do so go down. Um, so that, that's got to be part of it as well. Well, they, <clears> have, but it, they have a lot more to lose. So when, when you fall from the top of the pinnacle of a company, I mean, you fell a long ways. You have a personal embarrassment, which is pride and shame that was lost. Um, you have a financial pitfall. You, you experienced a heavy penalty um, other than like some drug deal on the street who gets arrested, um, their loss is nowhere near the loss of one of these white collar defendants. We are speaking with uh, Vic Hartman, who is the author of The Honest Truth About Fraud, A Retired FBI Agent Tells All. And uh, we're running out of time here. Um, so, But I do want to get back to what I hinted at the start, because I think we have time to work it in. So you were telling me that you uh, worked on a case where there is a theft of, of moon rocks, meaning rocks that had actually been recovered from one of the NASA lunar missions. Um, can, can, you, can you tell us sort of a, a, a synopsis or a succinct description of, of kind of what that, what that case was, was like? Sure. You know, I got a call um, from a German geologist and he said that somebody was selling uh, moon rocks on the internet, you know? And so when you get that cold, you get that cold call, um, you're like, you know, who are you and why are you calling me? And certainly nobody's selling moon rocks on the internet, uh, which is what he thought as well. Um, but he was very credible and, a, and an expert in his field. And so certainly wanted to look into it. And naturally what I thought was that this was some scam that somebody's going to sell rocks from the earth. Um, and they're going to sell them for a lot of money um, to to uh, to this German geologist. So we put an undercover in the scenario and started developing an online relationship and then a personal relationship of the sellers of these moon rocks. Um, and it turns out they were some Brigham Young interns um, that were purportedly selling these rocks. Uh, so the undercover sting happened, went through, they sold them. And sure enough, they were moon rocks. 
they were actually interns at NASA. Um, and NASA had put the rocks in safes, but the safes had wheels on them so they could wheel them around the different floors of NASA. And these brilliant students decided they would take the safe, roll it down the freight elevator, load it onto a van and drive off with them, which is exactly what they did. Um, and then sold them. Now, the fascinating piece about this, Mike, is because I know your expertise is valuation. So how do you, and, and the reason why this became relevant, when a defendant gets sentenced at trial, one of the factors that a judge considers is what's the loss to the victim. In this case, it's theft of government property and it belongs to the United States government. So what are the value of these moon rocks? That, that was I think the question that, that I posed to you. You did. I mean, I, I, I go back to that question a lot, actually, because it is one of the more fascinating valuation problems I've, uh, I've, I've discussed. Do you want to do, do the big reveal or should I? Um, well, you know, and I'm not an expert in valuation, but I, I learned a little bit about valuation um, because I was working a savings and loan fraud case and the, the issue pivoted on what's the value of a skyscraper in Houston. And they overvalued the, the, uh, the, the building in order to get a humongous loan and commit fraud against the bank. Mm-hmm. So then I, I schooled myself up on uh, valuation issues. Um, and there's, th- there's three approaches to valuations as I understand it. Um, and one would be the, the fair market value. So what, what is a, what does a product sell or a house or whatever good between two parties, A and B? So the fair market value. Of course, in, in moon rocks, there's just, there's no fair market value. They don't trade, so that's not um, available. Another is an income stream. So if what's the income stream of this, in this skyscraper in Houston I was trying to value? If it threw off rents and revenues and you discounted, you know, for, for 20 years, it threw off X million dollars and you discounted the current present value, that might be the value of that. Um, but that wouldn't work for moon rocks either. And so what, what, um, the government actually did in this case was the cost approach to value. So if you had to go back to the moon and get these rocks, what would it cost? And we looked at the, um, Apollo 11 or one one of the Apollos that got these rocks, the cost of that mission to the moon, and then brought it forward to present value of how much it would be to, to get those moon rocks. And it, it turned out to be in the billions of dollars which was off the sentencing guidelines. I mean, once you exceed, I think, 100 million or some number, it really becomes irrelevant. So the, these defendants just mm-hmm. maxed out on the value of, of what they had stolen. And, and I agree with that. <clears throat> you know, I, you know they're, they're, they aren't trade, they, they are traded. Um, I, I don't know what the disposition of moon rocks are. Certainly the U.S. government has, has them. I imagine a few academic institutions hold them as well. And, but, but I would imagine they're probably not allowed to sell them. Like if a, if a donor came on and said, Hey, I'll give you a hundred million dollars because I would like some moon rocks. Right. If the university were tempted to accept that offer. They probably would not be allowed to. Right. Um, because I think they'd be considered sort of a, a property of humanity, not of a, not of an individual. And, uh, you know, I think you're right. And that's pulled into more focus now as we have the Artemis program that. You know, that we think we're going to be returning to, uh, crude lunar missions sometime this decade. I mean, that, that's, that's the only chance you can get. There are only two ways to get a moon rock legally. One is you go back to the moon and get them. Or two, you hope that something really big hits the moon, creates some meteorites and pieces of the moon hit in your backyard. 
and that's a that's a pretty tough scenario to to wait for. So, and the interesting thing there is is you, know, you mentioned the safe. It's it's the opportunity, right? The amazing right. thing is that there's an opportunity for interns who are probably being paid less than minimum wage to somehow to not not only was the safe itself mobile, but there was a way to get that safe out of NASA without a security stopping them and asking like. What you doing with the safe? So, <laughs> you know, the the, the 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 you know clearly there is an issue on the opportunity, and that NASA, I'm sure, has uh, has tightened up ever since. Um, Vic, this has been a great conversation. I'm, I'm already holding you longer than I had promised, and I know you have more bad guys you got to go out there and catch. Um, if people want to contact you to learn more about kind of the, kind of this topic and and how you might be able to help them with with fraud matters in general. Uh, what's the best way for them to contact you? You know, I have a big internet presence. If you type my name, Vic Hartman, into Google, you'll quickly find hartmanfirm.com. So I would love to reach out to your audience if I could help them in some way. Uh, and we only scratch the surface on the topics that I covered in my book, The Honest Truth About Fraud. Uh, and I will offer your listeners this. If you'll go to my website when you and, and purchase the book at checkout, if you type in the coupon Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N, you'll get 25% off. So I'd love for your readers to read the book and uh, contact me and give me some feedback what they think. All right. That's a good deal. So not only good information, but you get a coupon as well, which I think is a first on the Decision Vision program. So thank you for that. Um, That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Vic Hartman so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us. That Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.